Hello and thanks for listening to RT Radio 1's The Rolling Wave podcast with me, Aoife Cormick. In this episode, we're bringing you a special programme made for the arts show back in 2009. That year, Clada Records was marking its 50th anniversary and we invited some guests into studio to talk about the label and its pioneering work recording traditional musicians, poets and Irish composers. We were very fortunate at the time that so many of the people who had been involved in the establishment of CLADA were able to be with us, some of whom have sadly since died. Our guests were Garach de Bruyne, Ivor Brown, Paddy Maloney, John Montague, Dolly McMahon and Peter Brown. And of course, we played some great music as well. A new book about Clada Records and Garach de Bruyne by James Morrissey has just been published and so we thought it would be nice to go back and revisit this particular programme and these stories again. The programme you're about to hear is presented by Vincent Woods and it was produced by me, Aoife Cormick, and we hope you enjoy hearing it again. Fifty years ago this year, Clada Records was founded, initially to record the music of Piper Leo Rosam. Since then, it has gone on to produce hundreds of legendary albums from even more legendary musicians, including The Chieftains, Tommy Potts, Sean O'Rea, the Seamus Ennis, and recordings of poets, Patrick Cavanagh, John Montague, Seamus Heaney and Thomas Kinsella, among others. I'm joined on the programme tonight by some of the founding members of Clada, Chairman of Clada Records, Garrick de Bruyne, and Ivor Brown here in studio, and poet John Montague, who joins us from France. Former Clada Records manager and member of the Chieftains, Paddy Maloney will be talking to us from America and also in studio, singer Dolly McMahon who recorded her first album with Clada along with longtime musician, Clada fan and radio producer Peter Brown. But let's start with music and here's a track from the very first album which was recorded and released by Clada Records. This is Rena Bibery or the King of the Pipers from the album of the same name played by Leo Rosam. King of the Pipers there, played by Leo Rosam, from the very first album recorded by Clada Records in 1959. And also from 1959, from the time of the launching of that album, and I'm sure bringing back memories for all of you here, a recording from the RTE archives. Christmas shoppers can this week add the country's newest disc to their present lists. It's just out today, an LP record of Leo Rosam, King of the Pipers, pressed for a new Irish record company, Clada Records. I have here in the studio with me now Garrett Brown, a director of the company. And Garrett, I'd like to ask you first, what was behind the foundation of this company? Well, we felt there was a serious need for more records of Irish interest, and in particular for those of traditional Irish music. I know that you yourself are very deeply interested in traditional music. Do you feel a sort of sacred trust to push it? Well, I feel that there haven't been really enough records for anybody who wanted them, and that it was simply practically a matter of necessity. Yes. Well, what about other discs for for your new company? Well, I hope we're going to have a large number, but we have four planned, 
which include Brendan Behan, Margaret Barry and Michael Gorman, and Dolly McMahona. How are you going to bring out your next one? Will, it, will you wait for the profits for this to come in before you go on to the next? That's precisely what we will do, yes, although the second one is well underway already. Yes, yes, but basically it's a question of one disc, then for two next. more, and then for, yes. yes, this kind of thing. Well, finally, I'd, I'd like to say a word about your very colourful record cover. What's its significance? Well, it's a picture of Leo Rosen playing the fox chase for Lady Molly Cusack Smith, otherwise known as Molly O'Rourke, who is the master of the Birmingham and North Galway foxhounds. I see. Well, I think that, that gives us a nice out. What better way than to listen to Leo Rosen playing the fox chase? From 1959, uh, Garrick de Bruyne, listening to that, I'm sure many memories coming back to you. Remind us, though, um, of that first recording uh, with Leo Rosam and how you came to make that. I was sitting in a flat that I lived in in Dublin, in Quinns Lane, and with Ivor Brown, and he told me that he'd been going round all the record companies trying to get one of them to make an LP of Leo Rosam, and they all basically said a 78 of Pipering is all right, but nobody would want to listen for 20 minutes <laughs> to anyone playing the pipes, and certainly nobody would want double that on an LP. And so Ivor just started talking about this, and we were both pupils of Leo's, and uh, Ivor went on to become a piper. I did not, but I learned nonetheless how to listen properly. Um, and... Um, I said, well, why don't we try and do it ourselves and gather up enough money to do it? And with a certain amount of difficulty, contrary to popular belief, we succeeded. It was quite an undertaking for a 20-year-old, as you were at the time. Where did your passion for the music come from? That's always rather difficult to answer, because coming from the west of Ireland, it was all around me. And secondly, because... a I was having been totally incapable of understanding any purpose of a school, any school that I'd ever been to where I never learned anything I thought was a training for prison, if it was a training for anything. Um, I was in Paris trying to learn French at the Berlitz School of Languages and my particular teacher happened to be a Breton and he asked me all kinds of questions about Ireland that I couldn't answer. And so I came back to find out for myself and I set off to a flower kill in Ennis, and uh, with my brother Tara, and uh, the third person I met, not that I had any idea who he was, he was playing quietly on the other side of a room, and it was Willie Clancy, and I never really looked back. But as a child, I used to, when there was Irish music on the radio, which I was given a radio when I was a seven, was when I was seven, a huge big thing, and I loved it, and uh, whenever Irish music came on, I'd leap up on the bed and hop about like any other foolish child. Ivor Brown, um, how, what was the state of traditional music in Dublin, I would say, in the, in the late 1950s? Was there much live music to be heard? There, there was a certain amount, um, certainly on the north side of Dublin. There were always there was always enclaves of of Irish musicians, uh, so it was very much alive in that sense. But piping, as such, was in a fairly dangerous state. I mean, you could nearly count on the fingers of one hand the significant pipers at that time: Leo, Willie Clancy, Seamus Ennis, who was actually wasn't in the country. Uh, 
one or two others, Tommy Wreck. And and then, as I say, if 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 they had not survived and and been recorded, the, the piping could well have died like the harping did. What and drew you to piping? I think you came to it initially, didn't you? You came to Irish music through jazz. Yeah, jazz was my main interest, although my father did play jigs and reels on the mandolin. He'd been down in Clonakilty at Crossroads Dances before the First World War, but I didn't take any interest in that. No, I remember specifically a day I was in in Capel Street with my brother and one of the Dunn family travellers was playing the fiddle and I was astonished. I was just saying he's improvising just like a jazz musician and that got me interested. Then I, I found out the Piper Club in Thomas Street and I used to, and that's where I met Leo. I can't remember when I met you, Garrett. Uh, no, can I. <laughs> but <laughs> fortunately met, you did meet. Yeah, we met fairly early. And, and the rest is history. So obviously from quite early on, Ivor, you were aware of the importance as well of recording some of this music. Yeah, I was very aware and, and became more aware of that, uh, particularly about piping, that, that, that there was a real danger of it dying out. Uh, maybe it was wrong, maybe it wouldn't have, but it certainly seemed a danger to me at the time. Garrick, you know, going back, setting up Cladet, setting up the company, uh, were you at that time going against any competition? You know, for, for instance, if, if anyone wanted to listen to uh, an album of traditional music in the late 50s, uh, were there many companies uh, releasing traditional recordings? I we, suppose Gaelin was there from what the, about the mid fifties. Well, the strange thing is, yes, Gaelin was there, but they'd actually begun with seventy eight. Yeah, and we were the first LP. Um, John Montague uh, in France, you were in on on all of this from really quite early on. What are your memories of that time? Well, I couldn't tell them all, but um, there was something fascinating was happening in Ireland at that time. We were we were beginning to emerge from the doldrums. There was this music at the Flat Coals, and there also was a new kind of poetry seemed to be emerging, and the whole island seemed to be emerging from sleep. So I think that's the kind of background that I felt. And I found it extraordinary, of course, that, uh, that Gareth, from his background, uh, had this fascination with uh, this almost lost music. People don't realise that a lot of Irish music seemed on the edge of disappearance. And in the period before that, we'd mainly had the parlour songs of John McCormick and even of James Joyce. Irish music had lost its audience as the language seemed to die. So all this was being slowly... was coming back again with a new power. So I think that's the background as I experienced it. Where did your own interest in, in the music come from, John? Oh, I had an uncle. I had an uncle who played the fiddle, and I heard, I heard some in County Tyrone. There wasn't too much left, but uh, I heard some. And uh, well, my family was all was always a musical family. There was always at least one member in in each generation who played, and so I'd heard a lot, but hadn't been satisfied with what I heard. And so when when I heard uh, a kind of deeper note, you know, it's like when. Um, Alan Lomax, when he went after the blues, after the old singers who were in, who were often in jail, but I'm not saying the Irish lot were in jail, but um, this older sound was coming back. Um, again, Garrick, I'm fascinated by the, the notion of, of all of this starting out. You know, did you have, uh, once you decided that there would be a label, did you have a particular philosophy uh, to build around it? Certainly, but our philosophy was 
in general to record important things that nobody else was recording and also to make sure that the sleeve notes were written by writers and that the front of the sleeve was either done by a distinguished painter, sometimes a distinguished photographer. Sculptor, too. And a sculptor. Well, yes, except that they were, weren't sculptures on the, <laughs> on the cover. <laughs> uh, but you are talking about Eddie Delaney. Yeah. Another aspect, I think, and credit to Garrett, to try and keep to the pure traditional music. The uh, pure drop. Yeah, because a lot of changes were also beginning to happen in Irish music, and I think it was important that somebody was protecting the, the central tradition. Well, another thing that was striking me there when you were talking, there were houses all over Ireland uh, where people were playing the music, families, and I don't know who told me, but somebody said that some of these families were regarded almost like a family that had mental illness. They were peculiar people, and so they didn't venture out much. They played in their kitchens and had set dances, but when the the, when t the Piper's Club in Thomas Street <clears throat> started the Coltus movement and started the Flas, each town they went to, these people would emerge like they came out from under rocks. And, the you know, quite quickly, Irish music became something you didn't have to be ashamed of. So it was like bringing a language back yeah. into the light, in yeah. a sense. But um, the people were, the players were there. There were lots of them, in fact, particularly in places like Clare and Galway and... And, of course, many people um, beginning their recording careers with Clada, and one of those, uh, Donny McMahon, we're privileged to have here with us tonight. Uh, Donny, you recorded that wonderful first album with Clada. How did that happen? How did it happen? Well, I got to know a girl uh, socially, and um, I knew he was interested in traditional music and that he liked traditional singing. And uh, on occasions at various parties... Uh, there would always be a song or a musician would play. And so it began as a very sociable uh, and an idea Then God eventually decided, very kindly offered me, uh, a, a recording. Uh, would I make an LP for um, Cloud of Records? And I was amazed because uh, I had no um, great interest in uh, recording or becoming famous or otherwise. I, I never did. That's neither here nor there. But I did have a number of songs that I learned from my father that were rather unusual and uh, I didn't ever hear anyone else uh, sing them. And uh, people liked them, uh, well, at least my friends did anyway. <laughs> so it was, that's how I made a collection of uh, uh, traditional songs. As traditional as I, as I'm not really a traditional singer, but I did sing the songs that I loved to sing and some people liked them. Many people indeed like and love them. Um, what are your memories of the actual recording process? Was it enjoyable at the time? Recording? Mm. Or was it a challenge? It, it, was very, it was very easy. It was very simple. And uh, the recording studios weren't anything like as sophisticated as the one we're in now. <laughs> but uh, it, um, the recording I made was in the Peter Hunt Studios. And at that time, uh, the studio was um, in St. Stephen's Green. Uh, it was quite near the theatre, our cinema. And um, I think, from what I remember, uh, that uh, Gene Martin, the late Gene Martin, was the sound man and a really a genius, most extraordinary man. And um, then we had various musicians who uh, accompanied me. And this young man over here, Peter Brown, 
minded me and directed me. <laughs> and uh, then we had Dennis Murphy, Paddy Maloney, and it was done very, very, very pleasantly and an afternoon now and again, and eventually we finished it. And to me, it was uh, mostly uh, never to be commercially successful, but it was a pleasure to be able to, to make the recording. So I enjoyed doing it. With a great metal of people. Um, let's listen to Dolly McMahon singing Lord Gregory. I am a king's daughter from the town of Capaquin in search of Lord Gregory. Pray God I'll find him. Lord Gregory is not here, love, and henceforth can't be seen. For he's gone to Bonnie Scotland to bring home his new queen. Dolly McMahon there singing Lord Gregory, that recording from 1966. Paddy Maloney, you were manager of Cladder Records from 1968 to 1975 and over the years produced, I think, 45 albums for them. Um, you're joining us on the line from the US. Um, I think you were involved as well in, in that recording with Dolly, weren't you? Yes, hello there. And oh gosh, it's great. Uh, although I'm on the other side of the world to, to uh, hear all those wonderful stories of Cladder and the beginnings and... Uh, yes, I was involved in in, the, in Dolly's album as well, and I, and I may be wrong, but I think it was the first uh, solo uh, album uh, that uh, had certain songs with uh, musical, uh, traditional Irish instruments, and it was uh, great fun to record in Peter Hunt's studio, uh, which was um, just one very large room and one microphone, and, <laughs> and that's how he went for it. But uh, it had all the passion, though, of, uh, you know, of you know, recording back in your own parlour or back home. And to listen to Dolly's rendition there, that lovely song, just terrific. That wonderful clarity uh, still still there. Um, Paddy, how did you get involved with Clada in the first place? I uh, I got to know Gareth, you know, meeting at Flack Yoles, and, and, uh, and he, he'd kill me now for saying this, but uh, we did sit down when he was a pupil of Leo, I was a pupil of Leo, as was Willie Clancy, and we did play together a little duet on the pipes, and I'm... So sorry I didn't uh, uh, get him to continue on because uh, he was showing good promise with those big long fingers of his. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I remember in 1956 uh, there was a flat hole in Tulla in County Clare and uh, Michael Tubbledy and myself went on bicycles around Clare for the week. We had a great time, wonderful music. And, but I remember Maroni and Igonica and Gareth uh, coming in to. Uh, uh, where we were playing, and, and I said, that's, that's an extraordinary character, this fellow, and he was showing such tremendous interest and passion in the music, and, and then we got to know one another after that, and we often went around to his place in Queen's Lane, as he mentioned there. And Of course, the Chieftains made their, their first album with Clada, and indeed went on to make many more. How important uh, was Clada for you, for you all in, in those early days? I think, well, it's just, it's just, it's just ter- I mean, to, to be given an opportunity to make a, 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 an album, you know, and it, it also encouraged you to get in and do things musically as well. You know, it took uh, the rehearsals for that, you know, was, was just amazing. You know, went on for about six months, you know. After work, we were all, we all had our day jobs, of course, and, and still continued to do so for 12 years after uh, the first album. But uh, it was, it was, 
a great opportunity for me to the ideas I had in uh, uh, sort of musical combinations, different duets and quartets, and the, all the Cayley bands I was involved in. But uh, always sort of coming through it to the end, uh, what became the Chieftains, and and to be able to put that down on vinyl was just a, a great uh, boost for me and for uh, and for a lot of other musicians. Um, Paddy, we're going to hear a piece, I suppose, from the early days of the Chieftains. This from your second album, Chieftains Two: uh, Two Slip Jigs, The Humours of Whiskey, and Hardy Man the Fiddler. John Montague, as, as we were saying earlier, I suppose another very important strand of Clada's work was the recording of poets reading their own poetry. Was that part of the plan from the start? Oh, yes, it was, because um, my friend Gareth had an extraordinary knowledge of poetry, considering he had avoided school. And among the poets he admired was, for example, was a great Scots poet, was Hugh McDermott. And we brought him over to record in, in his 70s. And then, of course, there was Kavanagh, who was coughing, coughing through the streets of Dublin, and Austin Clark, who was uh, in his monastic quiet. And we caught both Kavanagh and Clark, and also made German. What was Patrick Kavanagh's reaction uh, to, I suppose, initially the proposal to record him and then the finished product? Well, um, well, the way Patrick was living, I think he was mainly interested in getting a cheque at the time. But, uh, no, he was pleased. He was very honoured. He was very proud. Mm-hmm. And I'd known him for years because he was a friend of my mother's, and so he'd always be—he was always very nice to children, and he went on being very nice to me. And although in theory he was interested in the money, actually halfway through the recording, he asked me to give him the money, and I did because I couldn't see any way of not doing so. And everybody said you're a fool, because he'll never come and complete. But he turned up for the next meeting, as he said he would. I think we should also mention that we did marvellous, uh, a wonderful record of uh, of Ted Hughes because I was thinking of all the Scots poets whom we recorded, but we also also got Ted Hughes and his extraordinary sequence called Crow, yes, with a cover by Barry Cook, and I think it should nearly be um, it should be a treasure. Mm, it is a, it is a treasure, and of course, John, you recorded for Clanty yourself. Oh yeah, I did. I, I didn't. Uh, I don't think I have a complete record. What I wanted to, well, obviously I was anxious to well, record my own work, but uh, what I did was to haul in Seamus Heaney for, for his first recording. And, uh, and we appeared together on the Northern Muse, which I think is uh, the first <coughs> recording of Heaney. And now, of course, uh, I'm working on a new record with, uh, with Mr. Maloney. And I we, promise, John. <laughs> by November it'll be finished. <laughs> <laughs> and and we look forward to it, and and we look forward to maybe hearing a little bit more about it well, later. Um, it's wonderful. Um, since uh, since we're on to on to the chieftains, sort of, I, I was so honoured that they chose a book of mine called Death of a Chieftain, and they took their title from that. I had this crazy idea of because I knew Brendan Bean as well, and been at many a party with him. Uh, and he used to sing a lovely song, uh, the, the beautiful song, on Dreaming Down Dealish. And uh, I actually 
put that record, that song on the first record in, in honour of Brendan and the way he used to sing it. But uh, I had this crazy idea that we, we'd call ourselves after his one of his books, The, the, the Choir Fellas. <laughs> so, Just as well you didn't. <laughs> so I'm sort of glad that that went away because in those days, you know, it was all right. But uh, so we we did come up and a lot of people all over the world still ask, where did you get the great name, the Chieftain? So thank you very much, John. <laughs> um, one, of course, one of the poets um, that John Montague mentioned there recorded early on for Clada was Patrick Kavanagh. And let's have a listen to one track from that wonderful album, Almost Everything, I think. That album is still available indeed. Uh, a unique recording from it, uh, from I think it's the first track. If ever you go to Dublin town in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Bagot Street and what he was like to know. Oh, he was a queer one, followed all the Dido. He was a queer one, I tell you. What a wonderful recording, Patrick Kavanagh uh, on Cladder Records. Peter Brown, uh, you've been <laughs> sitting here very patiently. Um, I know you weren't around at the very start, um, but what are your earliest memories of, of Clada and all of this? Well, it's interesting. Everyone we've heard on the programme so far has been actually a part of the whole thing, whereas I would have been, I suppose, in a sense, the very first of the actual consumers whom Gareth and Ivor and John and Paddy, everyone else, would, would have had in mind for this, because that disc of Leo Rossum's, I remember I used to go into Leo every Saturday, every Wednesday in the Piper's Club and I actually bought my copy from him for something like sort of 17 and sixpence halfpenny or something like that. And those records were very important at the time because, you know, nowadays there are many people playing traditional music, there's many sources for music. At that stage, there weren't too many people playing, as everyone has said, and there, there weren't that many discs available. So when you got something like that, like Leo's record or some of the other ones, and the one I particularly always think of is one called The Star Above the Garter with Dennis Murphy and Julie Clifford. I think that every note of that in some way permeated my being. I could play every tune on it. Every time it comes on, I get a sort of a warm feeling. And uh, there's a couple of things uh, to say. J John Montague, I think, was saying there about the country sort of being in the doldrums. There was something about the time, and it may have to do with the different things that were happening. A whole lot of things happened at the same time. You know, the Flan, Coltus, Coltarier, and Dolly's husband, Kieran McMahon, was going around the country, and with rural electrification, that the suddenly people were well able to listen to the radio. And I think it may just have to do even with something that happens after the Second World War. So something different was happening at that time. But certainly for me, I think it, it, it was a wonderful experiment. I know that a lot of record labels have a sort of romantic birth and then they travel on into big corporations. But this one seems to just stay the same and everything about it um, had integrity. Like someone said, the fact that there were solo individual players, all the artwork, the, the sleeve notes are all done in a very consistent way. So it's, it's wonderful to hear a discussion of this. I was just simply, so at, at that time, just someone hunting for tunes. But when you hear all this background, you realise there was an awful lot more to it than that. When you look at the catalogue, it is extraordinary. That great album, and I'm happy to say that it, it's still available because I, I bought it on CD last weekend, uh, The Star Above the Garter, Fiddle Tunes from Kerry, uh, Dennis Murphy and Julie Clifford. Remind us of that album you know, and, and those two players in particular. Even when you look at the cover, the cover is one of the most unique ones. Perhaps Gareth can tell us. I remember even the, the, the name of the lady who did it was Catherine Follett. I think it's a drawing, possibly in Dan Connell's pub. But there's <laughs> something about, even though it's not sort of cons consistent, you'd think, with traditional music, where you know you might have either cottages or rural scenes. Um, this is a, a beautiful thing in sort of vivid colour. Dennis Murphy and Julia Clifford were sister and brother. They used to say that they were almost played telepathically. They wouldn't have to um, decide what tunes they were going to play. It's almost by a look they would know what, what tunes they were going to play. 
there's something I've always loved about Slee of Lurken music and a particular sort of warmth in it. And every track on this just has some, some sort of feeling, a, a beautiful smoothness about it. Um, and as I say, I know that they were very good friends of, of, of uh, people, people here in the room. But I would think, OK, there's an awful lot has happened nowadays in terms of traditional music, how it's played, who plays it, the number of people playing it, the different tunes. But I would still say that certain ones of the Cladic catalogue, like that or like Tommy Poss, some other ones, anyone whoever wants to sort of imagine they have a complete view of what traditional music is about, they would have to hear these discs or they're, they're missing something very basic in, in their education or just in, in the, the way that they will ever sense or imagine or feel traditional music. I but this is a wonderful album, isn't it? Yes, it's beautiful. I'm just reminded as Peter's talking there, I went down to the Fla in Ennis and I'd, I'd never heard of Dennis Murphy and I was walking down the street and I heard this music coming out of a hotel and I went in and there was Dennis playing and I was so captivated. I just stayed there the whole night. I never moved. And from then on, you know, became a very dear friend. I used to go down to remember in, in Sleeve Lucra and he'd wake you up in the morning with a large whiskey and a bottle of stout. <laughs> and you're the last thing you felt like drinking at that hour. And he'd be playing then that night after midnight, never having stopped all day. Uh, well, uh, we have an appropriate... My little, uh, my little trips down to any excuse to go down to visit Dennis... Uh, you know, I five or six times, and uh, we used to bring the family, and and uh, Julia, Julia Mary would would say, "Listen, come now and stay because we have the central heating in." And, and uh, <laughs> but in the evening time, you know, we'd be discussing tunes and going over pieces with them, and then we go off to to Scottish Glen. Uh, there's a famous pub there that after hours you go into the kitchen, and they'd hop off the floor. That wonderful Kerry dancing, which was just amazing. So it was. A great joy to be, you know, put that record together. I, I, I got great satisfaction and learned an awful lot of tunes and met a lot of great musicians through, through Dennis from that part of the world. But when you come up then, you know, and, and you'll hear in subsequent later albums of the Chieftains, there's Dennis Murphy's this and there's Dennis Murphy and the Scotty Glen Polka. And it was all as a result of that, as Peter was saying there, you know, how music, great music will influence you and... and uh, it's just those little trips and Dennis and all, you know, we have to give great credit to him. Let's hear them play from that wonderful album, The Star Above the Garter. Uh, this is Farewell to Whiskey and The Dark Girl. Over the years, I suppose, you managed to persuade a lot of sometimes reluctant performers uh, to come into studio and record their albums. And and one of those, and indeed maybe one of the most important albums in, in the Clada, back catalogue, is the, the album made by the Dublin fiddle player Tommy Potts. Um, why was it so hard to get Tommy to record? I think because he was a deeply religious man and he felt if he made a recording he might be guilty of the sin of pride. And... He actually had twice agreed with Kieran Makmahuna that he would go in to play on the job of journey work and just didn't turn up. And so I asked him if he would and surprisingly he said yes and even more surprisingly he came and did so. And there were a few people who said they wouldn't record for anybody but me. One was was Tommy Potts and the other was Mara Nyanigunaka who had made one 
78 for Guilin and wouldn't do so again. I don't know why. And um, he came down to Lugalore because I thought it was better to do it in a house than in a recording studio, that it wouldn't make him quite so nervous. And then I was the one who became very nervous, and I'm very bad at the names of dance tunes. I, can, I know the names of airs, but um, I was very frightened, wondering what to ask him to play next. But he was wonderful, and he played away quite happily. And uh, he never made another recording. He wasn't willing to make another recording either, but he was perfectly happy with it. And I loved it. You were saying about him being so religious. At, at times, I, I knew Tommy very well, he would get a religious phase and he'd give up playing, sometimes for three months or more. Oh, yeah. And then the music, he just couldn't keep away from it and he'd come back playing again. <laughs> but I got him to play drink. in the street one day with Maltrine Burns, <laughs> in, the, in the middle of the street, in, in the middle of the day. I mean, we were just walking in one direction and Tommy came in the other direction. I said, would you play a tune? And they both just stepped into a doorway and started playing. So, and you wouldn't think he'd have done that either, you know. I mean, unexpected things happen in traditional music, I think. And just going back, Dolly was mentioning Scarta Glen. I was there one night and Dennis and Porrick were playing together and I was astonished at the identification between the two because Porrick taught all those musicians. Dennis used to wrinkle his nose at the same moment that, that Porrick O'Keefe would wrinkle. <laughs> <laughs> it was a total identification. That's the synchronicity of the play. Um, Garrick's was another then very important record uh, which was done again in your home in Lugalaw was Sean O'Reilly's last album, O'Reilly's Farewell. What do you remember about that recording? Well, the very strange thing about that is we'd be, I'd been talking to Sean about doing it, oh, for a couple of years. And Sean rang up and said, uh, coming up to Dublin next week, could we do this recording? And so I said, yes, we'll try and pull the harpsichord together. And he arrived and did it. And three weeks later, I got a phone call from Cork from Ruth to say she was very, very worried about Sean. And he was indeed dying, and we got him. Uh, we had endless discussions whether he should come to Dublin or London, but there was a slightly more specialist hospital in London. And if we could have got him, which we did, to London, it was no longer a journey by plane to London, really, than from Cork to Dublin. And then there wasn't a flight on the plane, so I rang up Tim O'Driscoll, who was a director of Aer Lingus as well as Board Fulcher, and he got Sean onto the plane. And so it was John Montague who decided that it should be called O'Reilly's Farewell, because we thought he had very intentionally come up to do it, suspecting that something wasn't quite right, yeah. and that he was fulfilling a long-made promise. Coming and the back sad thing was that we cut out all Sean O'Reilly's comments because it was so soon after he died, none of us could bear to listen to them. But actually, we should have made a copy. But we couldn't, we just couldn't bear it. So that much lost uh, to posterity. Let's remind ourselves of the music of Tommy Potts, going back to Tommy Potts. And here he is with O'Dowd's Reel.
Tommy Potts there with O'Dowd's Reel. Um, Gara, coming back to poetry, I, I suppose um, more recently you issued a, a double CD collection of the poetry of Thomas Kinsella, um, 1956 to 2006. Um, how did those recordings come to be? Well, I was sitting with Richard Ryan, who is another of our co-directors, and um, I thought it was, we had re- already recorded Tom Kinsler years ago when his wife Eleanor wasn't very well, and so it was called Fair Eleanor, O Christ Thee Save. And amazingly, Christ did, and she's alive and well, and they're both in the County Galway as we speak. Um, and I was talking to Richard Ryan, and I said, well, I think it really is time that we did uh, an updated recording of Tom. And uh, Richard agreed, said that he thought it was so important that it should be a double album, with which I agreed. And Richard sat actually in the studio with Tom, and rather unusually, I only went in for an hour or so. And we recorded a vast deal more for archival purposes. And, um, well, there we are, really. It was as simple as that. And, I mean, Tom is probably one of the greatest Irish poets and, strangely, rather more appreciated in America and England than here, I think. Uh, Peter Brown, um, back in in 1998, you had the pleasure of recording uh, and producing, rather, Clara's Choice, um, this compilation celebration of 20 years uh, of Clatter Records then. So you had to sit down and look at the back catalogue as it was then, and it really is a formidable catalogue. Oh, it's fantastic. Yes, I remember, look and listen, and it's only then when you when you viewed the whole thing and heard it all that you realised the, 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 the wealth of it over those 50 years. And really, you know, OK, if you were to ask what the next 50 years would bring, the whole game has sort of changed in a sense. It's so easy to record a disc. There are so many discs coming out, so many different things, and there's all this thing of downloading tracks. But when you look at the catalogue, you, you just realise that everything was that was done had value from the moment it was done, and it really is priceless nowadays. And you, you can only congratulate all those people who were involved in that. And I mean, I don't know, Gareth, what your sort of foresight or was or what your vision of it was, but you can certainly look back and say, and Ivor... And John, that, that, it was a, that it was a wonderful thing to have done. One of the things I thought also was that if we did the things that we do well properly, they would allow all kinds of other things to happen. Because otherwise, really, the only thing that you could buy in Ireland were records of show bands. And I, that didn't seem to me to be part of the rock and roll world either. And then that seemed to be right too, because we've ended up with U2, etc., Ivor, when you look back over the years, what do you stands out for you in a sense as Clara's achievement? I, I think the fact that it held on to a kind of purity, um, and I think again credit to Gareth for that, because it's so easy to go astray, and so many record companies just died and so on. Um, I don't know what the future of Clara can be. It's much more difficult situation now, but certainly as Peter says. Those things that were done, I think, are priceless and hopefully will be preserved now for posterity. Dolly, I mean, everyone in the world of, of traditional music and more with a great deal to be grateful to Clada for. You know, uh, when I was young, traditional music became very popular. Again, going back to the Chieftains, or the Matt Malloy's and Lee Flynn's and Dennis Murphy. 
uh, it was easier to listen to musicians, I think, possibly in bars and places. You didn't have to stop talking. But traditional singing wasn't very acceptable socially, from point of view of casual singing in pubs and so on. So uh, it came afterwards, the traditional singing um, became more acceptable. The two didn't go together, and they still don't go together socially. And you would say that the Clado had a role in making it all except more acceptable? Well, of course, because uh, they had... Um, they chose the right people, we'll say. And uh, they had uh, extremely good taste, and uh, they knew what they were after. They knew that they were preserving the music, and that at the same time they weren't making uh, archival uh, material. But that they, I don't think that uh, Garg ever intended uh, for Clara to be a huge commercial success, but to do something that was worth doing. Garrick, I suppose the whole landscape of recording and music generally changing so much. How do you see its future now? Well, there are still an awful lot of people that ought to be recorded. It's very simple and very straightforward. And in the case of the poetry, we've got a backlog because that's even slower selling than traditional music. A lot done and more to do. A great deal more to do. There's one point that strikes me that you were saying when we, what we look back on. With all the recording now, the local styles are tending to disappear. Everybody knows different styles. And I think that's one thing of the Cladder recordings, that they were capturing these styles like Dennis Murphy, like Tommy Potts, when they were very separate and hadn't been adulterated in any way. Uh, Paddy, how do you see, looking back again you know, over the history of Cladder, how, what do you think its main achievement has been? Incredible, but you know, on the on the Tommy Potts, you know, just talking about Tommy, <clears throat> to me, like he was a man way ahead of his time with the style that he had, and uh, there was the Great Church Street, the the club there uh, in in the fifties, and uh, Tommy would come in and uh, be uh, Bridie Laverty on piano, and he he just made incredible stuff. I mean, he was a person that had to be, but uh, as somebody was saying there, Dolly was saying or. Uh, uh, Garrett said it there, yet that he wasn't quite accepted within the, the traditional circles because the improvisation that he did was just amazing. And I, I remember when we were recording down in Garrett's house, uh, he kept talking to me all the time. I had to sit right in front of him as we were as if we were just having a session. And uh, now and again, he'd be doing wonderful stuff in the middle of a tune. He'd stop because of the nervous situation. He'd stop and point away, Paddy. I just want to. <laughs> I'd be furious because I would have lost uh, a brilliant take and start all over again. But we did get to it, and and in fact, we did bring him into a studio, Trend Studios, uh, a year later. Uh, he brought his dear wife with him as well, with the intention of of making this second album. There's a, a couple of recordings were made. Uh, which I'm sure you have in your, your vaults, Gareth, someplace in Clara. But uh, it'd be worth sort of getting them out. But it didn't really come up to the same standard that Tommy, he knew he couldn't really do it again, you know, so it didn't happen again. But, you know, the great stories and the great times about Clara, and, and, you know, number one was getting the quality music, getting the quality songs and poetry uh, uh, down on tape. And that continues, you know, which is fantastic. There was a great sort of anchor thing started there. As I call it, the, the mother company. A lot of people will ask, you know, you've been on this label and, and you're Sony and all these, but uh, all this now and again refer back to the Clatter Records as the, the beginning of, you know, where we recorded first. So for me, my heart is there.
And uh, John Montague, I presume some of your heart there as well. Oh, yeah, of course. I think there's a threefold achievement. Their preservation of the pure drop in traditional music is the recording of the poets. But there also was contemporary music, because well, to give um, a powerful example, there's the, um, there's the recording of Freddie May. And most people haven't, hadn't heard of Freddie May. And he was small, almost a dwarf, and he and had gone deaf. And yet he wrote beautiful music, beautiful music, and had a very sad story. He, he had a scholarship off to Vienna at the beginning of the war. And so instead of being in a splendid kind of musical context, he had to come back to Ireland. At that time, he began to go deaf. Well, Gareth heard him once in my company, uh, Freddie had had played a a recording of his, and he decided that he was going to do a record on Freddie. And, of course, it was obviously not going to sell, because nobody had heard of him, hardly. Uh, But uh, he went through with it, and he got Jimmy Plunkett, who didn't want to do the cover, but happened happened to admire Freddie. So, and Gareth, with his uh, sly and subtle way, convinced him that he had to do the cover. So I think that record uh, of Freddie May is my prize record in the whole Flada album, yeah. including myself. And there, I'm afraid, we have to leave it. Uh, Clada celebrating 50 years, an extraordinary legacy, a gift indeed for all of us and for those who'll come after us. we leave you in a moment with the voices of Sarah and the late Rita Kane from the album Once I Loved, recorded by Clada in 1969. But thanks to all our guests, Garrick de Bruyne, Ivor Brown, Paddy Maloney, John Montague, Dolly McMahon and Peter Brown. Mark Dwyer was on sound tonight. Derek Nagel was the broadcast coordinator and the producer was Ethan McCormick. This is the Kane Sisters with Andrainon Don from all of us. Goodbye. by a handsome young man I am daily complaining for my own darling John confuse them Thanks for listening to the Rolling Wave podcast. For a full list of previous podcasts in the series, you can go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts. Until the next time, Gurumila Mahi, Agaslan.